Amen. Thank you, Bart. And thank you, guys, for the music. And thank you all for being here. I want to invite you to go with me in your Bible or your copy of God's Word, whether that be a copy, a paper hard copy, or you have an app on your phone or something like that, to the book of Acts. We are back in our series. We got back in it last week. Our series we're titling Church on the Move, uh, journeying through the book of Acts and trying to find principles of things that uh, God has shown us there uh, through the early church and how we might apply that to us as individuals and then um, in our church corporately together. So we are in the book of Acts, chapter 6. We read of the righteous one that can make us righteous in Isaiah's prophecy there. And now we're going to look at when Stephen points to that of this whole story of Israel looking to this righteous one fits them together here. And so in Acts chapter 6, we're there. And uh, we are, you see in this passage, uh, some of you might be looking at the bulletin at the number of verses listed there, and you're like, oh my word, we're going to be here all day. Um, uh, we often will take a small section and sometimes we'll take a larger section and uh, it, it can be tough. And one of the reasons why, uh, on the side, why you need to come to church regularly because if we're going through sequence, you can kind of keep that together, you know? And so if you read one part of the story, it's kind of like if you watch a show, hit pause and then don't uh, finish the movie for a couple of weeks, you're kind of like, whoa, what happened here? And so it's good to kind of keep that sequence up. And some same way when we go through books of the Bible, uh, it's good to dig down in. It's also good to kind of get flyovers to kind of know where the context is and what we're doing. So we'll try to do that today. And um, one of the beauties of um, uh, preaching uh, sequentially through a book of the Bible is if time runs out, we'll just pick up there next week. And uh, so we'll see how that my, my pastor um, in South Carolina called those sausage sermons. And he would just go to about lunchtime and cut the sausage off and pick it up next time. And... Um, Anyway, so Acts chapter 6, we see here, this is the first martyr in the New Testament. Um, I was kind of wrestling with a title for this, and Stephen's one of the first deacons, and he dies here, and it calls him uh, that he had the face of an angel. Um, and uh, there's some, I've read some people that titled this, the, the man with the face of an angel. Or, and, and I thought, you know, I could really have some fun and talk about the angel-faced deacons. And, uh, and you guys could tease... Uh, you know, Hank and Dick and Jeremy and those guys about being angel-faced. And, uh, or, I don't, that has nothing to do with beards or lack of beards or non-beards. But anyway, but we're going to see this martyrdom here. And what I want to do is I want to read um, uh, the end of chapter 6 and then the end of chapter 7. So we'll, we'll skip there. Last time we were together, we saw that the healthy bodies, uh, bodies of, of Christians, churches, uh, like our bodies, have healthy systems. We have certain systems in our physical body, and a, and a good church is going to have healthy systems. And so a church on the move is going to be one that is, uh, recognizes the key of discipleship and delegation. And so we see that, that first there was that, um, um, that responsibility, that, that uh, the reality of the problem that these widows were being neglected, these Hellenist widows, and then that the responsibility that the church had to that, that that was a, a super important thing, and that they were, there was an injustice being done that was fueled by some cultural uh, discrimination. And then uh, what we also saw, that there was a recognition of the priority of those that had the ministry of the word, and the remedy was that they would appoint the seven that we see as the prototype deacons 
in the New Testament, and the result that comes was that they were pleased, and the word of God continued to increase, or the word of God increased, as verse 7 says. And that's really what it does. It's not I that do the work or another minister, but it's the word of God. The word works. It is profitable. Uh, it, get, it gets the job done. And so we'll pick up with our reading in verse 8 of Acts chapter 6. This is God's word. And Stephen, full of grace, or faith, and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those that belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those who from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. And they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit from which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him. They brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then if you would jump down with me to chapter 7, if you turn there, Stephen is his response and he gives them a history of Israel and then he picks up in verse 51, verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, who always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things... They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, they fell asleep. he fell asleep. God, would you help us now as we open your word? Thank you for your spirit who will use it. And Lord, I pray that it would minister the needs that you have determined that it would minister to this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to divide this up in a few sections here, and I'll start them with an A. So we'll alliterate this. We'll start with the first section here we see in chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, the arrest of Stephen. He is arrested, and he's brought before them, and there is this, uh, he is speaking truth. He is, uh, and they are angry. They can't argue with what he's saying. Uh, they accuse him of speaking blasphemous words against Moses. 
And then the, he's, these blasphemous words are primarily because, this is where it gets the real rub, he's speaking against their, the customs that they had twisted and put human things to it. So it wasn't against the law or anything like this that God had given, but against their things. that things. And I want to share this. Um, 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 Drew Conley, who was our pastor down in Greenville when we lived down there, he, he made a statement one time that stuck with me. He said that the gospel, speaking of being gospel-centered and the gospel, that the gospel makes self-righteous people uncomfortable. The gospel makes self-righteous people uncomfortable. And, and, and when the gospel and truth is, is, is being unfolded, self-righteous people, religious people, are very uncomfortable with that. This gospel-centered idea, uh, it, it doesn't jive with those that like to have a legalism or a self-righteousness or a Phariseeism or maybe might someone in the extremes of maybe a, a, a fundamentalism or something like that. Um, that that, that they, it, it makes them very uncomfortable. Uh, because it, it kind of takes it out. It, it really, what it does is it um, knocks down false securities. And we're going to see that as uh, Stephen goes through and kind of gives this flyover of the whole history of Israel, he knocks down some things that they were leaning on that often we lean on ourselves that to find false security in rather than looking and gazing upon the righteous one, the Christ, the Messiah. And so this is the first reference uh, it says there is this even full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people in verse eight. This is the first account of someone besides the apostles performing signs and wonders. I want you to think that in and, and to, to think about that when it comes to certain like uh, positions about signs and wonders or, or, or sign gifts and things like that. This is a non-apostle uh, that, that that is it is he is performing these signs and wonders. And it says that there is. The synagogue of the freedmen. Now, the name of the synagogue of the freedmen, that sh- the name of it shows the constituency of this. So they are the freed ones. They were the Jews who had been slaves. Maybe when they were de- uh, deported or they were throughout the de- when they were dispersed amongst the nations, they were f- the slaves that were now free and they were worshiping. And there was this whole synagogue system uh, throughout Palestine. And... Um, they were upset, and it tells you where they were. And so they, and the irony of this is, these folks that were Hellenist Jews, that the whole church had really just done this huge move to make sure that they were caring for the widows of Hellenist Jews. And then this accusation of Stedham comes from the Hellenist Jews, and we're not part of the church, but part of the synagogue system. And what this is also doing is it's showing us here that the division. Uh, between the early church and the synagogue system is now starting to grow, that that chasm is starting to spread out and Christianity is starting to spread. And really, that's what we see going on here. There's a transition um, in Acts chapter 6 and 7 because you see Saul showing up on the end. Saul becomes Paul, um, uh, that he, showing up, and he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and so we see this transition of the gospel being in Jerusalem Scattered to being scattered abroad amongst uh, all the world outside of Jerusalem. And what the catalyst is for the church to be scattered is the death of Stephen. It's been said that often the, the, the gospel flourishes in places where, that the soil has already been soiled by the blood of the martyrs. And so we see that taking place here. It says in verse 5 that he is full of grace, faith, and power. 
the, the Spirit of God, we all have the Holy Spirit at salvation, but, but we're also told that we're supposed to seek the Spirit in Luke, Luke. We're supposed to not quench the Spirit. We're not supposed to grieve the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And we need to uh, be, be, have an intimate relationship with Him uh, as we're going about this Christian life. And so they make these accusations. They, uh, they bring up witnesses or false witnesses to bring up fake news about um, about Stephen and how he's to respond to this. So I would say this as well. Uh, be careful when you hear negative news, accusations about a, a, a ministry or a minister or things like that. Uh, uh, Titus would tell us to not receive that accusation except in two or three witnesses. And, I, and, I, and I've... Uh, um, I, I, I still consider myself on the young side, but but I've I've learned to to when I hear stuff about a, a preacher falling or a ministry that's changed or something like that, I used to kind of there's that tendency that we all have to want to be first with the worst, you know, and kind of be right there with the gossip and there's just something about gossip that's just juicy and enticing to us, and and, and just because you're saved doesn't mean you don't have that, and so sometimes uh, particularly uh, social media, the online stuff or the the discernment folks, uh, um, uh, the Things are wanting to share these things, and and you know, there was just something I read recently about a guy I know in ministry, and there, it was like this this slander, and it was all based on something that really was just one person say from a blog post, and that was everybody was citing the same thing, and um, and you just be careful when you're you know, and so there's something there too, but there, but so there was this uh, accusations about um, Stephen here, and Stephen is set to respond, and that's when we come to chapter seven. So the high priest, so they're, they're angry at him and they're staring at him. Um, they kind of, that they gazed upon him in verse 15 of chapter 7. And really, they're, they're, they're staring intently, the, the underlying language would tell us there. That they're, they're kind of just, they're kind of giving that glare. And they're, they're staring at him and the high priest says, Are these things so? In chapter one, verse 1 of chapter 7. And Stephen now starts a response. So his defense his defense of himself, he really turns it into a sermon. And his defense is to set before him a reminder of Jewish history. Adam reminded us of this this morning in um, the prayer time before the service of when, when, when John the Baptist was doubting that the response was to Jesus was to remind him of what had happened in the Old Testament. Those promises. So, so in his defense, he's like, I want to remind you guys of your own history here. And so... His response is to turn this into a sermon, a history lesson. And, but, but this history lesson is important because it's not just a story about history. It's a story about redemption. And it's a story about all of the prophets and stuff that have been pointing to a righteous, just one, as he calls Jesus here, the Messiah, that all of this was pointing to. And I love that when verse 2 there of chapter 7, look at that. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. He hears an angry, hostile crowd, and he responds to them with respectful titles to them. There's something to be said there, to be kind to those that you're in opposition with. And he starts off with a respectful title. Brothers and sirs, calls them by their titles. Brothers, he, 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 calls, he calls brothers and fathers, hear me in this. And then he goes into this, reciting how God has been at work through his anointed people. And he summarizes the history of Israel and highlights several different types of Jesus that have been uh, rejected in these pictures of Jesus throughout their time. 
and, uh, and then that they were all leading to the rejection that they would have uh, of the Redeemer. And so I just want to walk through these together. So look at verse 2. And he gives uh, uh, parts of this, uh, Abraham's call. So he says here in, in verse 2, and I'm going to make some comments along the way. Brothers and sisters, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. And went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, he removed him from there to this land that you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his, his offspring, through, though he had no child. That he's reminding him that there was this promise to Israel, that he, to, to, to Abram, and he didn't even have a spot of land. You're going to own all of this, but you don't own a bit yet. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others and would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve. And God said, after they shall come and, the, and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and the, Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs it goes on then and they talk about joseph's story in verses 9 to 16 but what he's saying is basically this promise was here to abraham and all he really had was this promise of circumcision he didn't really have any evidence physically he didn't have any real estate in this yet even though that was what was part of the promise and he goes on with with the the story of of joseph in verses 9 to 16 and then when we get to verses 17 onward the story he spends the bulk of his time talking about moses this is so important the story of the exodus the story of what god did in egypt i mean of course that's where we get the passover the new covenant picture and what we have in the lord's table Um, but it's so important and um uh, for us to wrestle with that, and I hear us talking about that, uh, some of the, the kids in their classes talking about the Exodus and uh, the plagues, and of course it's a great story, and you're all, some of you are hearing Charlton Heston's voice in your head right now, even when we talk about that, and I'm going to be really disappointed if I get to heaven and Moses' voice doesn't sound like Charlton Heston. Um, I, I sure probably won't be disappointed, but you know that's what I'm expecting, and you can have your own imagination about what Moses' voice sounds like. Um, but it goes on about the rejection here. That's so important about that for us to see this. I, I was thinking about this this week, and um, Jesus said, "If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe me either." Um, recently, a, 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 a friend of mine, who's now a self-proclaimed atheist, uh, shared something online about how there is not one shred of archaeological evidence about the Exodus. Um, and, uh, and so part of us have to be like, well, is that true? Is there, is there, is there not? I mean, you know, and, uh, well, one, we, 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 believe God. And, and one of the things is that, um, the Bible is innocent until proven guilty. Whereas most skeptics would say it's guilty until proven innocent. Uh, but there is, there are a lot of hints to it, even in archeological science. Um, but I would also add this, that sometimes silence is a good argument on itself. Um, so how many totalitarian regimes do you know that when they wrote a history of themselves they talked about all of their failures so do you know in all the hieroglyphs and tombs and and and, uh things in egypt all the exploits of pharaoh or the pharaohs he never lost once 
according to their own history and stories. So there's a pretty good reason that there might not be open up some pyramid on a tour and say, hey, here's where... Um, Here's here's where uh, a pharaoh got schooled by a bunch of slaves making bricks, you know, that had this god that put all this stuff in it. So you're not expecting, and so most archaeologists aren't expecting to find that that says, you know, Israel was here, we beat them, they lost. You know, you're not expecting to find that. Uh, the other is that um, there's also a lot of things with the northern part and uh, a lot of climate things that happened there. So anyway, I think there's a lot of things and there's a couple uh, good documentaries out and some things like that that I'd encourage you to look at. And if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about that at some point as well. So anyway, so he goes in uh, uh, talking about Moses and the Exodus, about how Moses is appointed by God and they reject him. And he brings this message and the people are, we don't want anything to do with this. And when he's 40 years old and they, how you're going to kill us like you did that. And then Moses goes out in the desert. He comes back and there's still this things, this problem. And then it's a great story. So Aaron, God divides up this, that Aaron is working with Moses through the whole story of the plagues. Um, and then they get out of Egypt and then Aaron kind of turns on Moses and and, and, and and bows to the people and they start the golden calves and all these things. And there's this whole time that they continue to be rejecting the messengers, the prophets that God has uh, given them. And of course, you know that Moses is ruling and then God told him and they did the division of labor under Moses. But the people were rejecting this. Uh, rejecting this and so we see this theme repeating that we humans israel like us tend to reject the messengers that god has in our lives stephen was revealing truth to these people from their own history and they were angry about it when truth is being told and false securities are being taken down people will get angry um as I said, the gospel makes self-righteous people uncomfortable. And so there are some securities that they have that Stephen's history lesson really just kind of kicks that false security out from under them. The first uh, security that they have is that they're kind of trying to put God in a box. They're rejecting him, but they're trying to put him in a box that here's how God works. And isn't that what we do? We have an idea. This is how God works. Here's how he works all the time. This is what success looks like. This is what this looks like. And this is how this is. And if you're going to grow, you go through these steps. And we might even write a book about it or have a discipleship guide or, 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 or have experienced that. And, okay, this happened to me when I got right with God at this time or I got saved. So now this is how it's supposed to be forever and ever as um, Randy Travis would say and amen. Um, so so it's just that's the way it's supposed to work. So they one of the things that they have a false security in is the land. Oh, this is our land, our land. And Moses is, or Stephen is pointing out, wait a minute, this promise to Abraham, he didn't even have anything. And even at the end of all this, all they own is like a grave plot. Okay, you're going to own all this and all you have is a, a grave plot. Um, and the, they're leaning on this. And we tend to do that. A certain place, we'll find security in that or a certain thing. And, and he goes on and said that this holy ground, and he, I love this, how he brings this out. So, so they're leaning on this false security of the land. And so he's like, okay, Abraham really didn't have anything. Joseph really didn't have anything either. And Moses, he's down in Sinai. And when he's getting the thing, God says, take your shoes off or your sandals because the ground you're walking on is holy ground. Now, was Moses in the holy land? No. But wherever God's presence is, that's where holy ground is. 
So don't be, see, so he's saying, don't be hung up and leaning on this false, false security of the land to these Jews. Don't be just, don't find your security in, uh, in, in boundaries or a place or a physical place. And, um, and the next one is, he's, it's basically saying, don't find this security. There's a false security in the law. And so this is where we come to verse 39 uh, to 40. He says, the Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in, in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And this is the one who is the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And what was the way they responded? Basically, Moses put this up. Moses said there's coming a holy one, a righteous one, this angel of the Lord that was an Old Testament picture of Jesus. And how did our fathers respond? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They were leaning on this law or they they would think of this. And the other is um, that verses um, 48 to 50 this false security that they would have with a place. And so um, they're in the wilderness. They have this tent where God meets them. And that would be so cool, right? Like to know God's there. That there's this place you go. And um, But then verse 48 tells us this. And of course, in David, who's not able to, wants to build a temple and his son ends up building the temple. And then it says this. So after all this, God says in verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, and what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these? And so there's a false security in a temple because there was a picture that Jesus is our temple. And we don't look to a physical temple, we're looking to Jesus. He is this. And so he is warning them this tendency for them to put God in a box, that God is sovereign. He is majestic. He can't put, be put in a box, whether that be a land or law or temple. And yet these people tend to reject him, tend to put him in a box. And we too are like the Jews that lean on false securities about God. There might be some false securities that you and I are leaning on this morning. We might think, hey, there's a land. We, we're in a privileged nation. We are a privileged people. I come from a privileged family. Or uh, my family has a certain faith tradition and heritage. Or we have this. And we can lean on those things, can't we? We can find security in those things. And God shakes those things that our faith in, needs to be Him. We, we can find security in the law or the Bible. They're like, well, I know the Bible. You know, I can win all the trivia games, you know. And, and uh, whatever that might be. But that, that's not where our, our, our hope is. Hopefully, the, the, the Bible is not an end itself. And, and don't take me wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm inerrant, infallible Bible. But the Bible is not an end in itself. The Bible is meant to give us, to show us, bring us to God, to point us to the message. It's not just to be like, all right, it's great. I got a Bible now, you know. Uh, and, you know? And so it's like, to use it, you know, read it. That, that, you let it be its intended purpose. Sometimes 
we can battle the battle for the Bible can be so much as okay, I got the Bible and then we don't open it. Um, that's where we've got to be careful that we don't we do more preaching the Bible than preaching about the Bible. You know, um, and one of the best ways to show you believe the Bible is to open it up and l- unleash it. And so um, that we can have false security like that. We can have false security in a place. May that be our home or the place of our church or something like that. And God's saying, no, no, no. These can all be false things. And we need to look to Christ. And they continually rejected. And so the response there, we're in verse 51 now. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. I'd love to go back and unpack that. But uh, that this this circumcision was always to be that of a heart you resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And kill the, the one whom announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So basically he's saying this whole history lesson that he's given was pointing to these types and pictures of the Redeemer that was the just righteous one, Jesus, and you killed him just like your ancestors have done to his prophets all along. This is what we do. In our sinful condition, we reject God's messengers. And God continually sends them. And this is the means of grace that God often gives. Is, is for us to have these messengers and we're rejecting this. So we're rejecting the word. And so, verse 51 that, that there that they rejected and resisted the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a phrase in theology that you might have heard and can be contentious and people talk about it. And I want to bring it up a little bit. I don't do this every week. But it's the word, the phrase irresistible grace. All right. You ever heard that? OK. Um, that and it's really a lot of those labels are misnomers uh, because they're, they're named by someone who argued against it. But here's what the, the beautiful thing about grace is. It's really a misnomer, irresistible grace, because we saw right here, as we see all over the Bible, that humans are always resisting the grace of God. We're always resisting the Holy Spirit. My flesh and your flesh is always rejecting God. We're saying, no, I don't want you, God. The beauty of God's grace is that grace is so amazing, so powerful, so effectual you want to use that phrase that it can call us to repentance beyond the natural resistance that we have i mean he's not i mean you say well god's dragging people kicking and streaming no 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 no. they want to be there because his grace is making it that whosoever will may come if they're willing they're coming because god's grace and every one of us that's saved is because god's grace was so great to call us beyond our flesh that wanted to resist him not an awesome thing god saved me I didn't do anything other than the sin that made it necessary, as we've said many times. And so we've seen that with Stephen's address. And we come to verse 57 to 59, we see uh, Stephen's agony that they have, uh, or verse 54, rather. And when they heard these things, as I said before, it says they were enraged. So as we said, when truth is told, self-righteous people are angry. The gospel makes self-righteous people uncomfortable. And they ground their teeth. 
I mean, this is like mad. I mean, it's not just that they were like staring at him. They're like grinding their teeth at him. And it said there that in verse 15 of the last chapter that they were staring at him. I said, it's not just they're gazing at him. They're just like, you know, there's a, um, uh, I was reading um, an author this week. He talked about this uh, French existential philosophers, which um, I don't read them. Um, not because I think it's wrong, but just because I'm not on that level. But one of these dudes, and I can't even pronounce his name, was a French philosopher that said that staring at others reduces them to the status of objects. That that when there's that these people hated and were so angry at Stephen that they're just staring at him to where he just becomes an object to them that they're not seeing anything else. You ever been like that? You ever been so mad at someone you're just kind of staring at them and it's like. They, they they kind of don't even, they're not even a person anymore. They're just like that object of you're mad at them, you know. And, and so Stephen becomes that object to them, uh, becoming the object of people's stare is what he does. And they stone him, as we read before. Stephen is stoned. He is brought, now this is a gruesome thing. I mean, it's not just like, you know, a few, I mean, it takes a, this is long, this is agony. So this is Stephen's agony. So we've seen, uh, Stephen's arrest, Stephen's address, Stephen's agony. And now we're seeing Stephen's adulation or his acceptance. What it tells us here, they cast him out of the city and the witness laid their garments at their feet. And they, and they were stoning Stephen. And he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out to the Lord, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. But I love what it says there earlier. Um, it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit. So they're gazing and glaring and staring at him. They're, they're angered. They're grinding their teeth. He's just this object. And his gaze, I mean, it's hard. You know, someone's, everyone's having someone mad at you. You're kind of like, why are you staring at me? What's going on? You know, um, and, and and so, but he, so rather than all worry that his, this is a lesson for us, his gaze is to Jesus. So when you're feeling that stare, look to Jesus. So he, he's he, he so he so he's looking to Jesus here, and it says, and he says, behold him, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees the heavens standing. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text, so I'm going to tell you that. So I might be wrong on this. But I think there's two things that might be true that are very good devotional thoughts about this. And here's where I get this. When Jesus ascends to heaven, what does it say is his posture at the right hand of God? Seated on a throne. Okay? But here it says he's standing. Right? Okay. So here's my two options that I want to share with you. And they might be true, might not be. Okay. One, what do people stand for? Like there's certain things we stand up for, right? So um, if we say we're going to say the pledge, you stand up. Um, if, 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 there's a, uh, if, if this is a wedding and da, 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 back door opens, everybody stands up, right? There's, you, you stand to honor something. That, that there's something being done here that Jesus is honoring. Now, and here's what's cool. The, Stephen, his name means wreath or he the, the, the one who's received this wreath um a, a, a crown and what i think is awesome about that is there's there's certain crowns in the bible that we can earn one is the martyr's crown stephen is the first christian to receive the martyr's crown 
So it's almost like Jesus is there to honor him, standing that he's getting this, this he's being awarded this crown. The other is this. Um, these guys have brought Stephen into a court. They brought him before the council in the Sanhedrin. And they've had um, false witnesses stand against him. And so in a courtroom, there are only certain people that stand. There's, those are the prosecuting and then those that would be the defense attorney, right? This is a modern sense, okay? So I'm reading this in. There's no one to stand for Stephen in this scene. But when he's seeing Jesus, Jesus is standing for him. And I think there's a lesson there for us a little bit, at least what I'm getting from it, that, that Jesus is our defense. That Jesus is, is the one, I mean, he is our advo- advocate. And so there he's leaning as he's gazing upon Jesus. So Stephen's focus at that moment, He was not reflecting and focusing upon the ugliness in the faces of those that were his accusers. He was focusing on Jesus. And it said back there at the beginning in chapter 6 that his face was like that of an angel. And what that is, is remember when uh, Moses uh, came off the mountain, that there was a glow about him. Uh, those that had been at the transfiguration or think there was a glow about him. I think there's something there of that he's been gazing upon Jesus that it's showing up on his own countenance as well. And so there's a lot of application for us here. And so that's our final point, our application. Um, God's prophets have always been mistreated by their own people. And they were often all persecuted. He says, which of the prophets did our fathers not kill? Basically, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David. And he didn't even get into the the major and minor prophets that were um, uh, persecuted or killed. Um, He said there in verse 51, which of them, all of them, they were all persecuted by their own, including the righteous one, Jesus, who these guys had been part of killing. But the difference is that Jesus is the righteous one that they were all pointing to. And his death is how he shares his righteousness. So how he gives that life to us is through the death of Jesus. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, it is his death and believing in that that you can have his righteousness added to you. The God who raised Jesus is the same God in the Old Testament. Um, and And it's... Coming to him um, is not some fad or some Jewish sect of it, but is being grafted into the people of God. You're being adopted into the people of God when you come to Jesus. This, this, I mean, this is not some Christianity is not this Johnny come lately religion. I mean, this is tied to what God's been doing from the the promise to Abraham and circumcision to this faith of this righteous one. And so, there's a lot here. A few applications that we would make for ourselves. about this story so of Stephen's trial his defense and then his acceptance by God the standing of Jesus for him um, of course we're going to get into this a little bit more next week that the, the young man Saul that's there at the feet with at their coats it becomes Paul um, it's a wonderful drama that's being affected here but but here's the the point I want to make is that the the effect of a person's life and ministry has nothing to do with its length or the numerical results. Um, was 
Stephen a good preacher? Was this an effective sermon? So, so we've got to think about what criteria we use there for what success is, or good or bad. So is a, is a, is a effective sermon everybody responding in a positive way and the aisle being filled and everybody down front praying? But what if the same sermon is, is responded to by stones or people turning their back? Um, I know of one um, minister that went to a, a, a liberal seminary and was trying to turn it around. And as he was preaching in chapel, people would stand up and turn their backs to it. You're like, man, that was a terrible failure of a sermon. Well, it depends on how you're counting success numbers, right? Um, that I mean, so Stephen is young. I mean, his life is cut off. You know, someone might have been saying, there might have been some of the other apostles there that are like, some of the other seven that were chosen there in the beginning of the chapter, they're like, man, Stephen, did you have to be so harsh? I mean, you could have been around a little longer, you know? You didn't have to go into that whole diatribe about how they killed people. Um, uh, and... Um, that you might have had a little longevity in your ministry there if you had paced that out a little bit, Stephen. Um, so I'm going to say this, that numerical results are not the only or even the best measure of success. I want to be careful to say that, and I, say, I, I make that statement deliberately, because they are a uh, way of measurement. I mean, obviously, the, the church, when they talk about the, the word of God increasing, someone was counting, you know, so that was that was part of, but it's not the only or even the best measurement of success. The famed, um, I'll add, Baptist missionary, um, William Carey, um, in Burma, in India, um, 30 years it said that he labored with not one convert. Laboring daily, I mean, he did a lot of translation work, which is a lot of tedious work. And but you think about that. Think about if you're one of the supporting churches. Man, this guy's just been working on this translation all this time. I mean, we're, we're, you know, these letters aren't having, not seeing pictures of babies getting baptized or anything, or people coming down the aisle on your prayer letters here. You know, William Carey. But what happened is like in his death and now there's this flourishing ministry and Christians and there's tons of people in India that, are, that, that ministries that tie some of their heritage back to those that were trained or converted through the uh, results of William Carey's work. And we could go, there's so many stories and history and lessons and people and I mean, uh, that we could see of that, that that happens or or people that, I mean, who knows that the, the success of some of our ministries might not be in us but in our children, Right? I mean, and you're not even around for that. I mean, you even see that in Abraham and some of his things with the promise. So there's a lesson there for us. That Stephen, and Stephen, the lesson for us is that God used the death of a deacon, Stephen here, to bring about the expansion of the church. I mean, the church is cloistered in Jerusalem. And, and you're going to go in all, you're going to all the world. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. This is the theme of the whole book of Acts, right? Okay, so how is that going to be spread out? Well, okay, that, they're going to get, get up enough momentum and then they're going to move out and they're going to launch out teams and yeah, this is our plan, right? And God's plan is, all right, of those first deacons, one of them is going to die and that's what's going to get you out of Jerusalem. No, we don't plan that way, right? You know, I mean, that, that's not like, they didn't have that lesson in the, the church growth seminar series, right? You know, have a deacon martyred, you know, that'll help your church grow, right? <laughs> no, but... 
sometimes transitions in ministry are painful and sometimes require sacrifices. I mean, it took this for them to get out of Jerusalem as a church. So God is sovereign. He is majestic and he can't be put in a box, whether that be land, law, temple, building. And we don't want to put him and we don't want to lean on false securities. He sends messengers to strip away often our false securities with truth. Um, David and others were looking to a temple. Christ is who we look to. He is the final temple. And it was cool because Jesus did the same thing Stephen did. Stephen is so saturated and focusing on Jesus that some of the same stuff comes out. Remember Jesus? What they all get ticked off at Jesus about? Same thing, right? This guy said he'd destroy this temple and I'll build it in. And Jesus is saying... No, I'm not talking about this temple, the physical one. He's talking about his body, that Jesus himself is the final temple. So we look to the temple, Jesus. That's where we meet. He is, wherever he is, is holy ground. And so Jesus is fulfillment of God's dealing with Israel throughout all of history. And so a church on the move is going to be a church that gets out of the box and focuses on Jesus. That's really what we're seeing from this. If we're going to follow his example, we want to focus on Jesus like he did and how it affected his spirit, the way he responded, all of this. All of this was in the false securities that we lean on. We lean on him. We don't put him in a box. We're leaning on Jesus. And I hope that we'll do that this week in whatever ways that God would have us here. Um, So focus on Jesus. I encourage you to that. Um, That his grace is not lacking so whatever ugliness you're going to face this week might not be people glaring at you ready to throw stones at you um but focus on jesus and uh and you might just have the face of an angel as well okay let's pray father we love you thank you for this passage there's so much here and i feel like we've just barely done it any justice and but lord we're just going to trust that your word is not will not return void and So, Father, I would ask that you would make the application to us in the various ways that need to be done. Lord, help us now as we respond that the word would not um, be snatched away, that we wouldn't let our minds run to other things and, and not really let you do the work that you're wanting to do right now. And so, Lord, this precious time as we respond to your word now is part of our worship. We're going to worship you by responding to what we've seen in our in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song about how deep God's love for us. And I want to encourage you during this time, there might be some folks that need to just come pray. That, that, and I know there's different ideas about this, but part of how we worship is responding to the word of God. And, and, and one of the best ways to do that is to do that immediately. And so however God would lead you to respond to God's word, let's do that now as the guys lead us. Thank you.